the message for today. Let me start out with a story. I remember when I was a little boy, my favorite program that would come on was Monster Movie Matinee. It came on, besides sports, Monster Movie Matinee was my favorite thing. It came on on Saturday mornings, and it had movies about all these different monsters, Dracula and Frankenstein and The Blob and King Kong and, and Godzilla, all these different monsters. And I couldn't wait on Saturday morning to see a new monster and see what was going to happen in Monster Movie Matinee. Well, my favorite monster of all monsters was Godzilla. He was my favorite because he was the biggest one. And he seemed like to be the baddest monster around. I mean, Godzilla could breathe fire. What you going to do with that? You can't mess with this fire-breathing Godzilla. And so I, I love Godzilla. But then I remember getting real excited because there was a movie they said is coming on next week. It's Godzilla versus King Kong. And I'm like, yeah, this is good. Kong is about to get it, man. Kong, there's no way he can stand up against the fire-breathing Godzilla. Kong is about to go down. I was excited for that movie. But then the movie came on, and it didn't go the way I planned it, the way I thought it would happen. And at the end of the movie, what happens is King Kong, even after Godzilla breathed all this fire on him, I didn't get it. He's furry. He should just, like... He should be gone with that, but somehow he had flame-retarded fur. I don't know what happened, but Kong survived all that, and then they're wrestling, and, you know, Godzilla's got little arms, so he doesn't, he's not much of a wrestler, but they, they wrestle, and they fall into the ocean, and then for a couple minutes, all you see is bubbles coming up from the ocean. I'm like, come on, Godzilla. Come on, Godzilla. And at the end of the movie, what happens is you see King Kong swimming, away and a television commentator comes on and says king kong is going back to skull island but strangely enough we wish him well and i'm like that is the dumbest ending to a movie i've ever seen in my life there's no way that could happen i know better than that no way kong could beat big g man it's not gonna happen but it happened i was angry i was mad and i was seven years old problem was i'm not the producer of the movie right the producer saw that another ending was the right ending the producer the one who paid for it is the one who saw that this needs to have a clear ending and he saw that king kong should win i was mad that my monster lost how could that happen well today this does have something to do with what we'll talk about today today As we look at the scripture, we're going to see that Jesus lays out a brand new way of relating to God. He he, he marks a clear difference from the way that the rabbis and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law understood the word of God and the law of God. But here's the thing I want you to get. Make no mistake about it. When it comes to an understanding of God's law... Jesus is the producer. He's the one who has the final say. Jesus is the one who's able to authoritatively tell you this is what it means. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. We don't get a vote in this thing. I think it should mean this. 
this Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he graciously lays out his law for us. Listen, if you're a little bit aware of your sinfulness, if you're a little bit aware of the depravity of humankind, you should be happy that Jesus is the king. Amen? He's not the president. He's not looking for your vote. He's not running for office. He is the king of kings. So with that, let's stand up together and let's read from Matthew chapter 5. We're back to Matthew 5. And we'll look at verses 21 through 26. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Let's read together. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Amen. The sermon title today is Murder or Reconciliation. You choose. Murder or reconciliation, you choose. Let me pray. Father, I pray that in the coming moments you will speak to us through your word. Lord, that you would apply your word to each person under the sound of my voice. Lord, help us to take what you say as the final authority seriously and to, Lord, desire to live in a way that honors you greatly. Have your way now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I was supposed to do this sermon a few weeks ago. I got called away because of uh, a medical issue with my dad, who's doing real well, by God's grace. But the week before, uh, the last time we were in Matthew 5, we went through Matthew 5, 17 and 20, through 20, and the... The name for that sermon was Jesus Changes Everything. And now what we're going to see in the next few weeks as we go through the rest of Matthew chapter 5 is what that everything is. What exactly does Jesus change? Jesus is getting us to the true meaning of the law. There are six statements that are much like what you saw here in verse 21 where Jesus starts with, you have heard that it was said, 
And then he says, but I tell you, what's going on with that? Well, in the first two of these, he is quoting directly from the Ten Commandments. And in all of these statements, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, he is pointing God's people, the disciples who are gathered with him, he is pointing them back to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law, the law of Moses. He's pointing them back and saying, you've heard that it was said. Now, he's probably not just pointing them back to the actual words, but actually how those words have been taught and described by teachers in their own day. So he's saying, you've heard that this was what was said, but then he says, but now I'm telling you. Now, I'm about to tell you something. Now, you'll notice as we go through all of these in the coming month or so that Jesus never once contradicts what was said in the law of Moses. There is no contradiction. He had said earlier in Matthew 5 that he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. He doesn't do away with any piece of the law. But Moses, as the great lawgiver, went up on the mountain and received from the hand of God the Ten Commandments, and he received from God the law. But now, here we have, 1,500 years or so later, Jesus on the mountain dispensing the true knowledge of what was contained in that law in the first place. He gives the authoritative revelation of the meaning and the purpose of the law, which in the end tells us who God is. So let's look at verse 21. Verse 21, he simply says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to the judgment. First of all, the commandment, very simple. The commandment is do not murder. He takes that directly from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13, the sixth commandment where the Lord says, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders, Jesus says, is subject to the judgment. This is the clear teaching through the Old Testament. The Jews got that. They understood that. They believed that. It was woven into the heart of their society. And they understood that the meaning of this commandment also meant Why is it that you shall not murder? Because they understood from the scripture that every person is made in the image and likeness of God. So when we come against to kill or to murder another human being, it is an attack on the image of God. And they understood that. No matter who the person was, no matter if they were rich or poor, no matter if they were young or old, whether it was a person who's already been born or a person who's still in the womb. They understood that whether it was Asian, whether it was Hispanic, whether it was black, whether the the person was white, whether the person had a disability or had no so-called disabilities, they understood that every single person is in the image and likeness of God and to murder, to take life, is to do damage to God himself. So they understood this. But the reality is that whatever culture they found themselves in, whether through Moses or the prophets or in Jesus' day, that same ethic did not carry weight. And so Jesus is teaching in the first century, and the Roman Empire had a very different 
way of looking at life. As a, as a matter of fact, in the Roman Empire, babies could be killed for any reason at all. Most of you have heard of the Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero. He has a great reputation as a statesman and philosopher, but Cicero himself indicated that children could be discarded by parents for any reason whatsoever. There's an historian named O.M. Baki who wrote a book called When Children Became People. And he's speaking of what happened in the early days of the Christian church. And he writes that in Rome, children were considered non-persons. He chronicles how they used and exploited children in any way that people in power so desired. They could do whatever they wanted with them. But the Jewish law rejected that notion. Jesus rejects that notion. And Jesus agrees with the understanding of the sixth commandment that to come against life in any way is to go against the imago Dei. But Jesus is going to take this same principle even further. So there's two principles I want you to look at today in, uh, in our study. But the first one is this. Principle one, unrighteous anger has no place in God's kingdom. Verse 22 is going to take this to a whole new level. We'll see it in this, in this whole chapter. As I told you, he, ru- he runs through, you've heard it said, but now I tell you over and over again. But you need to appreciate what is actually going on here. Jesus is not giving a legal discussion of do's and don'ts. Let's look at verse 22. Verse 22, he says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anybody who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, Jesus is giving us a picture of the true meaning of the commandment. And when he does that, He is giving us a true picture of God himself. When we get the meaning of God's commandments wrong, we get God wrong. And I don't know about you, but I want to get God right. I want to do my best to understand God as he's revealed himself, not God as I would like him to be in my own eyes. So Jesus is revealing the true nature of God himself here. In Hebrews chapter 1, And verse 3, the scripture says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The scripture says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. The the word in the Greek there is character, or what we would call character. You want to know the character of God? You don't have to look anywhere else. Look at the life of Jesus. Look at who he is. That's what he is. And so he's revealing to us in this verse, not just a surface meaning of this verse, but the nature of this verse. So again, let's let's put the verse up there again. Verse 22. He says, I tell you that anyone who's angry with brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus is clearly 
and powerfully letting us know in this verse that murder is not just about a physical act of taking the life of another person. He's saying that the, the beginnings of murder don't happen with your hands. They don't happen with a weapon. They happen in your mind, your anger, your hatred. And then they can come out in your words as well by what you say. But he's saying the seeds of murder are in you already when you give yourself to this anger. This is a warning from God, and it is a revelation of who God is. He wants us to know him well. Now, some look at this verse, and and they see a progression going on here. From anyone who's angry, it says they're subject to judgment. Anyone who says raka is answerable to court, but anyone who says you fool is in danger of the fire of hell. And the way that some look at that is there's a progression. So if you're angry, yeah, you get a little judgment. If you say raka, which means stupid head or empty head, literally, that's what it means in Aramaic, empty head. So it is it is just a put down on people. Uh, if you say raka, yeah, there, there's maybe a little more accountability with the court. But if you say you fool, now you're in danger of the, chi- the, the fire of hell. The, the problem with that interpretation is that that's not what Jesus is getting at here at all. See, that kind of interpretation is a legalistic, pharisaical type of uh, interpretation that says, okay, what can I say? I can say raka. I can say empty head or dummy, and I'm all right, right? I'm, there's a little punishment, but I, I'm not talking about hell right now. Or I can be angry in my heart, and there's a little bit of judgment, but not ultimate judgment. Listen, in verse 21, when he lays out the sixth commandment, he uses the same phrase that he uses at the beginning of verse 22, that you'll be subject to judgment. And the judgment in the Old Testament for murder was the death penalty, right? And so when he says that, that's the starting point. The starting point and the end point here, the fire of hell, what he's saying is that our anger, our hatred is tantamount to murder. That's what God is teaching us. That's what Jesus is teaching us in this verse. It's a heavy reality, y'all. I I don't know where that leaves you. I know that leaves me in a rough place. Because if I'll be honest, I'd like to say that I've never given myself to that kind of anger. But if I look over my last week, I haven't made it so well. I'll talk more about that at the end of the sermon. But I've struggled with that at times. But, but here's what we need to not do now. We need to not water down the effect of Jesus' words by going straight to the doctrine of justification. Okay, but Jesus paid it all, and so I'm good. That's not what we need to do. We need to feel the full effect of what Jesus wants us to hear and know and understand the perfect righteousness of God that our anger, our hatred is tantamount to murder. Listen, if we can put ourselves in the place of these disciples on this hill, listening to Jesus for the first time, and they knew the commandments well, and Jesus is telling them, not only is murder wrong, but he says, your 
anger that you harbor towards your brother or sister is worthy of the very fire of hell. That's a shocking statement by Jesus. One of our problems is we've gotten so cozy with the Bible, with the verses, and that we hear it over and over again. It doesn't have that impact. This is meant to have impact. That our very act of harboring anger and hatred toward a brother or sister, Jesus says that's murderous and it's worthy of the fire of hell. It's powerful. This is how I would summarize this commandment. I think there's something to put, there it goes, on the board. The way of the kingdom of heaven is the way that fully embraces the image of God in every human being. Therefore, not only murder itself, not only an act of violence, but every hateful or angry thought harbored against other image bearers does not make it into the kingdom of heaven. John puts it this way in 1 John 3, verse 15. He he, he warns that anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's what Scripture says in 1 John 3.15. And he says, And you know that no murderer has eternal life. It's a hard word. Why is Jesus sharing this? What is he trying to do? Listen, if you're a disciple of Jesus here today, Jesus is calling you to set this mark as the proper one for your trajectory in every relationship. He's calling you away from being comfortable with your anger. He's calling you away from being hurtful with your language. He's calling you and he's calling me to a profound respect for every human being, every image bearer of God. And he's telling you and I that we have no right to set another standard. This is the standard. This is God's standard. So often what we do is take God's standard and say, we'll never make it, so let's set a lower standard. My wife and I have done tons of marital counseling over the years and a lot of premarital counseling as well. And there's a certain time in our premarital counseling where I get alone with the dude. I know he's a little scared when that day comes, but and I'm glad he is, just a little scared, but... And then my wife will get alone with the young lady. But one of the things that I want to impress on any young man who's about to get married is what God's standard for a husband is. That comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, where, where Jesus just lays it out for us. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. And did what? And gave himself up for her. And so I kind of lay this out to young men and say, this is the standard that God gives, that, that Jesus is the one who loves his church so much that he leaves every comfortable thing. He leaves heaven itself. He leaves the presence of his father and the angels to come into this dirty, nasty world. He comes into this place and he suffers Uh, throughout his whole life. Now he knows hunger. Now he knows thirst. Now he knows insults. Now he knows betrayal. 
he's learning all of these things. He's receiving all of these things. But he loves his bride, which is the church, so much that he gives away everything for his bride. So I tell a young man, that's the standard that God gives us for marriage. We don't have a right to set a lower bar. It's easy to set a lower bar. I I hear you, Izzy. Come on, that, that dude better be ready. He's got to be ready. We, we're going to get him ready. We're going to get him ready. But, but it's easy to set a lower bar. Look, I'm doing better than my daddy did. That's a bar. I'm doing better than uh, my friend is doing. I remember one time telling my wife, oh, this was a mistake. I had a friend who was really messing up in his marriage. And my wife and I were having, you know, just a, a marital discussion. And I remember telling her, well, at least I never, and I filled in some blanks, and my wife said, okay, that's the standard now? You should never be doing that in the first place. Oh, that was not a good thing to say. Let's set the standard where God sets the standards. With that in mind, let me suggest two ways that you can know that you're not rightly applying the sixth commandment according to Jesus. Number one is that you harbor anger and animosity toward others with little or no conviction that there's anything wrong with it. Easy for us to do because my anger is righteous. I'm, I'm mad for a right cause. Look at what the word of God says. I'm going to talk more about that later. But number two, you use language that doesn't honor the image of God in your fellow human beings, and you don't think about it twice. In other words, you can just go off on someone, either in their presence or outside of their presence, and there is no conviction of the Holy Spirit at work in you. This tells you that God wants to call you to a a new standard, a higher place. God wants to change you. This verse says that that kind of anger is, in Jesus' words, hell-worthy. That's serious. What he's saying is, don't look down on others who may have committed some heinous crime. Oh, you heard about this and you heard about that. And we talk about those people out there who commit some heinous crime and we look down our nose at it, God says, don't look down your nose. Look in the mirror. Look at your soul. Look at your sin. Jesus brings us to this place. The opposite of murder, we'll look in the rest of these verses, murder and all its associates, anger, hatred, name-calling, bullying. The opposite is not just allowing a life to continue. It's not just doing nothing. But the opposite of murder that we're going to find in these verses is reconciliation. It's pursuing God-honoring relationships. And Jesus is going to give us two examples of what that looks like in these verses. But here's the principle, the second principle pursuing reconciliation honors God. So it's not just letting it go, but actually pursuing reconciliation in relationships that honors God. 
So there's two examples. First of all, in verses 23 and 24, we're going to look at the first example there. And in that example, here's the point. Reconciliation is more important than religious observance. Look at verse 23. He says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Raise your hand if you know that verse, if you've heard that verse. Okay, most of us have heard that verse. If, if you're giving your gift at the altar and you realize that someone else has something against you, it says leave it there and go get it right and then come back to your offering. And we look at that and it's like, okay, I'm at New Life. It's, what do we call it, walk around Sunday? You know, it's walkabout Sunday and I'm coming up and I remember, oh my goodness, so, so-and-so is mad at me. They've got something against me. So instead of putting my offering in right now, I'm going to go you know, to East Oak Lane, or I'm going to go to Logan. I'm going to go, you know, somewhere here and get it right with that person, then I'll come back. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus is preaching this sermon in Galilee. Galilee is roughly 80 miles from Jerusalem. And when it says bringing your gift to the altar, there was only one place that that could happen for Jewish people in this time, and that was in the temple in Jerusalem. That's where they went to bring their offering. They would do that once or twice a year. And usually when they went up, there was a long line of people. It was about an 80-mile journey, and they did not have a Toyota. There was no helipad that they could land on. They walked. It would take days to do this round trip when he's saying, now you remember someone has something against you. Ah, I've got to leave my offering. What is the offering? It's probably an animal, right? a sheep or some other animal that you you leave there at the altar and now you've got to go all the way back several days journey and then come all the way back again this is an inconvenient reality this isn't some easy thing just get it right hook it up send an email i'm good this is hard this is shocking to those who are originally hearing this again he's saying you got to get this thing right But this type of teaching was all throughout the Old Testament that your religious observance, if your heart's in the wrong place, isn't getting you anywhere. Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 1.13. He said, stop bringing me meaningless offerings. He says, your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbath, and convocations, that is, all these celebrations that you have that I prescribed, in my word for you to have, he said, I can't bear your worthless assemblies. He says they're not worth a thing. Legalistic, religious observance or performance never saved anybody. So Jesus is saying in these verses, stop playing religion. He says, and start prioritizing reconciliation. Work on making these relationships right. Here's the thing. The reality is that any religious observance in and of itself means nothing if it's not tied to the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we can come on Sundays. We can give in offerings. We can 
be involved in ministry. We can pastor, we can preach, we can do all of these things in the name of God. But if my heart is separated from God, and if I am not in a place where I am, am, am malleable when the Spirit of God comes and convicts me of sin, and I just go on, there is no credit that I get for any of those things I ever do. He says, come to me and make these relationships right. It's important. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, well, many years ago, actually, I was mad at a mentor of mine who was also a seminary professor. He was also my pastor at the time. Some of you know Dr. Manny Ortiz. Passed away a couple years ago. Uh, but at this one time, I was so mad at Pastor Manny. He had said some things to me, dressed me down a little bit, and knocked me off my little Larry pedestal. I liked my little Larry pedestal, but he saw that I needed to come down off of it, and he offered a few words to me that I didn't like at all. I was so mad. Like, who are you saying this to me? Even though he's 20, 30 years older than me, he's a pastor, he's a seminary professor, but I'm like, I know my stuff. Who are you telling me? This, and I was so mad at Manny, and I had zero conviction about it. Like, I have a right to be mad. He shouldn't talk that way to me. He shouldn't say those things to me. And I remember I was just stewing in my anger. And then uh, Manny and I had a meeting, Pastor Manny and I, and he, he comes to me and he says, he says, Larry, what color is your blood? I got so mad. Like, we have all this beef going on, and you want to ask me what color my blood is? You know what color my blood is. Everybody knows what color my blood is. I know what color my blood is. What are you talking about, man? This was all just going on in my head. But after I just stewed in that a little while, I said, red. Can you stand up, Pastor Tim? I don't know if, how this is going to work with the microphone, but... We'll see. Pastor Manny came up to me and he hugged me like real hard, like a Jose hug. Oh, you want to no, 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 no. Like a, you're breaking my ribs, dude. I love you too, but don't hurt me. But he gave me one of those hugs. And he said, so is mine, Larry. So is mine. And I began to realize in that moment, that my anger, which I just allowed to go on, Pastor Manny was teaching me a deep lesson. Whatever the reason for our difference was, whatever the reason for my anger was, we are one and the same in Jesus Christ. We've both been bought with the red blood of Jesus. And I have no, no right to hold that murderous anger against my brother. Let me be real clear here, brothers and sisters. If you're justifying your anger and animosity towards others, if you don't care about how that impacts other people, you are out of step with the Spirit of God. I am out of step with the Spirit of God. Jesus commands us this is the language of his command to stop in the middle of worship and do this. So let me look at three ways that we can prioritize reconciled relationships and honor God. 
These are hard, but this is helpful. Number one, take an honest personal inventory and assess if you're holding anger against anyone. Name names. Let's get specific here. Who am I angry with? And then because we can often miss things when we do self-assessment, number two, ask one or two people who are very close to you. If they see or hear anything in you that indicates that you're holding anger or ill will towards anyone, again, name names. Who is it that I am holding this anger against? And then number three, if there are positives on one and two, if you are holding anger against God or or anger against someone, ask God to help you first get in a right place with him so that you can go to that person with love and seek real reconciliation. God is calling us to seek reconciliation. The last application here is in verses 25 and 26. And that example is this. The example is settle your issues with others as quickly as you can. Verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together or on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, who may throw, and you may be thrown in prison. And truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. In the previous verses, you weren't in trouble. You were in worship. But in these verses, you're not in worship. You're in trouble. And we can see in these verses, basically, you did something wrong. It is your fault. And he's saying, make it right as quickly as you can. Listen, what Jesus is doing here, Jesus isn't giving legal advice to anyone here. Matter of fact, this would be like the craziest legal advice you ever heard, right? You're not going to hear this from a lawyer. You're not going to hear this in a political candidate. This is not that kind of advice. Jesus says, don't cover up anything. He says, don't shade the truth in any way. Don't lie. Don't hide. Don't blame. Don't don't spin it some kind of way to put yourself in the good. He says, own up to the fullness of your sin. And then work with your neighbor to make it right as quickly as as you are able. This again is the ethical principle of this commandment is that the opposite, that that murder comes from our anger and our mind and the opposite of that is to seek real reconciliation and make things right. That's what he's telling us in this verse. Make it right. He says, do it right away. Settle matters quickly. Or he warns us, you'll get thrown into debtor's prison. Jesus is revealing the character of God as the reconciler of all things and teaching his disciples that their lives should be marked, not as those who choose to kill or to snuff out life, but to reconcile life and to bring the wholeness of God's goodness to life. We'll close in a personal way here today, I have to confess that the last few weeks for me, Pastor Tim knows, have been one of the hardest times in my life to actually fulfill this commandment. I struggled with it. Two hours after I finished this sermon, I was so happy I went and got my hair cut. 
I was chilling. I finished my sermon early. This is good. Two hours later, I was so mad I could spit nails. And I was glad that Pastor Tim was like 10 feet away from me in his office. And I went there, and he helped me work through a few things. But I have to realize that even when my anger may seem justified, even when my cause is righteous, it gets mixed with my sin. And it overflows easily as a toxic mixture that no longer recognizes the other person as an image bearer of God. When I want to hurt someone, when I want them to feel pain, when I want to get vengeance on another person, I am attempting to take the place that God alone has reserved for himself. And I'm refusing to give to the other the free grace and love that God has given me. So I have to search my soul and deal with my anger. I hope some of this will help somebody else. But as I've been doing that over the last couple of weeks, I have begun to understand a little bit more that so much of my anger, the root of it is my own idolatry. The degree of my anger is attached to how I see someone else attacking my worth and my value. But when I realize that my worth and value are in Jesus Christ and in Him alone, I'm not moved to vengeful anger, but I realize I'm in God's hands. My anger, and perhaps yours, is often directed to make other people change. You've got to say you're sorry. You've got to do something. You've got to do something to make up for what you've done. But what God's been teaching me is, my question needs to not be, how can they change? But God, what do you want me to learn through this about me? Another question, God, how do you want me to grow As a result of this, my idols always get in the way of my growth. I'm convinced the Lord wants me and probably everyone here to be in a place where we see the bigness of God, the overwhelming love of God, the demonstrated and amazing grace of God, eclipsing every idol to such a degree that they become like little pebbles and our God is Mount Everest. We see the greatness of our God. Relational friction, problems in relationships, animosity, even betrayal is normal in this fallen world. I wish that wasn't true. But it happens. If it ain't happened to you yet, it's going to happen. I wish it wasn't true, but it is. But you can ask Joseph. You can ask David. You can ask Elijah. Jeremiah, Peter, Paul, they know something about it. And maybe Jesus knows something about that too. Amen? Not only from first century Jews and first century Romans, but people in this room and a person at this pulpit. He knows about what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like for someone to go back on their promise. He knows what it's like for someone to turn the other way away from him. But instead of pouring out his wrath, he comes to us in love to reconcile us to himself. That is our God. So through all of this, I'm realizing that I can't love another person well unless I really am receiving the love of God himself. 
The other morning I woke up with a scripture on my heart, Romans 13, 8. It says, owe no man anything but to love. And I realized that I have a debt to every person to love them. Not to get them right. Not to make them respect me. Not to make them do something right. But I owe to every person to love them. God wants me to grow. Acts chapter 17, verse 28 says, In Him, God, we live and move and have our being. With all of this, I'm not saying that there isn't a place to grieve broken relationships. I'm not saying that there isn't a place to lament and deal with the hurt of our brokenness. That's all part of growing. But we bring our grief and lament to the Good Shepherd. We bring our disappointment to Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. We bring our sadness to Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. And we live every day to move towards love and reconciliation and therefore reject murder, anger, and hatred. Lord, help us. Help me to live out this command and glorify the name of our great God. Let me pray. Lord, this is a sober word. It's a sobering word as we recognize and realize how great you are and how much in need we are of you. Lord, I pray that you will help us to recognize and realize that our anger itself and then our loose tongues are a source of great grief for you as we attack your image in another human being. God, help us to grow. Help us to desire with all that is in us to glorify your name in all things. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name.